children wait in the water. Gods are gonna trouble the water. See that band all dressed in white. Gods are gonna trouble the water. The leader looks like the Israelite. Gods are gonna trouble. Well, hello. Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, I'll be. Uh, Wrapping up what I have to say about Harriet Jacobs' uh, incident in the life of a slave girl, um, published originally in 1860, I want to say 1864. No, 1861. The final one we're going to look at, uh, Green, was 1864. So, um, anyway, so right on the cusp of the Civil War, this slave narrative came out. It was, uh, you know, um, published by Lydia Marie Child, uh, or edited by her, um, and everything was in pseudonym, so it, it, it for a long time people thought maybe this was just like a, a novel, something like Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uh, the drama in it is certainly really amazing. It's really a wonderful, uh, crazy story if we track uh, everything that Harry Jacobs went through to get her children back and to escape slavery and then the, the harassment and treatment by her by her master up until his death. Um, really, really an amazing story. The efforts she went through to, to keep her family together are really heartbreaking and, and touching. Um, but it was only recently that, you know, in the last, I think, 40 years or so, that this got kind of revived and understood to be the, uh, a narrative by, by this woman, Harriet Jacobs, and that all these pseudonyms that were thrown in here were actually real people. So uh, we basically have a true story on our hands here. And um, in the last episode, I talked about all this and I talked about the, the narrative itself. So I, I want to jump in with uh, the second half of the story um, where we see how she lives her spent seven years in hiding in the town where she was enslaved, uh, just miles away from her master, who was constantly looking for her. Uh, she often had to go into hiding in the attic or in the, under the floorboards of her grandma's house. Sometimes she had to go, at least one time, she had to go hide in the swamp. Um, eventually, uh, when um, eventually she decided to make her move for freedom, and she did escape to New York, where she was able to be reunited with her family eventually. Um, so she was able to get her family out while she was like in hiding. It's, it's really an amazing, dramatic story. Great stuff here. Um, and one thing that's been really struck by reading at this time is just how much, uh, how much uh, she relied on, how much Harry Jacobs relied on uh, the other people, her friends, people around her in the community. Like she didn't do this on her own. A lot of these slave narratives, you get that sense, but some were more individual daring uh, that allowed them to escape. But in Harry Jacobs' case, it was like she was being supported by so many people, like extended family, friends, uh, even her her white lover, right, Mr. Sands in the story. But we, we talked about those identities last time. I think for this purpose is moving forward. When I'm talking about Harry Jacobs, I'll use Harriet Jacobs, not the pseudonym she uses, uh, the, the Linda Brandt. 
because I want him used to. But as for the characters, I'll, I'll use their pseudonyms without him. So I can like, always forget their original names. So Flint is this guy, Newcomb, uh, who is the Sands. I mean, it's it's not that important, um, but I'll, I'll use the pseudonyms because of what appears in the text, but um, I'll, I'll tend to call her Harry Jacobs. Um, so let's let's jump in now this half is is very narrative i think the first half had her politics about slavery laid out more directly this is much more of a personal account in the, in the second half of the book we we much more get her her feelings and her emotions and her sorrows and her her her, her anguish over losing her family and being separated from her family her desire to live in freedom and her realization she would have to be daring to to seize it it would be it's, it was her job to seize her freedom and her realizing that is a big part of the story and then how she lives her life in in a free state um, and how she comes to terms with the fugitive slave law and how she finally gets her her real legal freedom uh, it's really great inspiring stuff um, so anyways, uh, chapter 19 is where we left off, and here we see her children sold. The chapter is called Her Children Sold. Now this, you might think, is, is bad news, and it usually would have been bad news for, for a slave to see their children sold. But in this case, it's actually what she wanted is that, again, this was through her friends, through her, her associates uh, while she's in hiding. She was able to get Flint to sell her children. I mean, this was part of her initial plan, actually. This actually, she thought if she ran away, Flint wouldn't want to take care of her children, Ben and Ellen. Um, that's the names she gives them. And in a sense, it turns out he, she was right about that because Flint does eventually sell them to Mr. Sands. Uh, also sells William, her brother. Uh, so sells the whole, basically, the, the, that whole generation, except for Harry Jacobs herself, are sold to, to Mr. Sands who um, is another rich slaveholder from the town, but the one that, that Harry Jacobs chose to take as a lover and have children with in order to um, get away from Flint. Right? He, she was hoping that, as we saw last time, she was hoping that if she was pregnant, if she had a child with another man, then Flint wouldn't want her anymore. That's not quite how it works out. I think his sexual harassment uh, becomes less of a burden when she's away. And when she's in hiding, but he's still chasing her and hounding her. He wants her, his, she, he wants her property, his property back. Um, so, I mean, there's some drama here too, in that she talks about how her children were sold, but she also mentions how, because she was in hiding, she didn't know this was happening, and she would have dreams where her children were, were uh, lost to her. Uh, now, in chapter 20, we see. Flint becoming more and more obsessive in his search for um, Harry Jacobs, um, and she has to hide under the floorboards. And I, I think this chapter is highlighting just one of many times, because I can't believe he just went a few times over the course of seven years to her grandmother, because um, he's looking for her, and he thinks she's around. So wh where else would he go? He'd go to the grandmother, because that's where Harry Jacobs would, would run to. Uh, so I think this is just... The few times it's it's mentioned is probably um, a stand-in for many experiences like this, where she had to hide in the attic or under the floorboards while um, white men came around. Um, eventually, she has to go and hide in the swamp. Actually, in here, hide in like a decrepit house in the swamp. Um, and we get a lot of that over the next couple chapters. 
another chapter that's in chapter 21, the loophole of retreat also really highlights the experience she has living in this uh, crawl space, uh, living in the attic, uh, and some of what she goes through. For instance, the food has to be kind of passed up through trap doors. Uh, she's kind of plagued by insects that bite her uh, and, and, and damage her skin. And she needs to get medicine from her grandmother to, to treat that. So these seem to be like really nasty little insects and how she can only kind of talk to her kids one way. Now, all this is revealed to be a little, not a, like in a way less tragic than she experienced it. I mean, of course the tragedy is, is how she experienced it and that she thought her her children didn't know she was there and she could kind of just look out on them but not talk to them. In fact, her children seemed to know that she was hiding out there. Um, it was not that much. She, she wanted it a secret because she was afraid it would get out if her children knew. But in fact, they knew. And they also, for instance, get a secret of her, their parentage, which is kind of interesting. You know, kids, kids are smart. Kids figure things out that way. So, um, but we see her going through a lot of torment here over that. Um, chapter 22, Christmas Festivals, is a fun little piece of Americana where we see the slaves' uh, Christmas festivals take place, um, which she gets to witness. Here, I'll quote a bit of it. Every child rises early on Christmas morning to see the Jokanas. Without them, Christmas would be shown of its greatest attraction. They consist of companies of slaves from the plantations, generally of the lower classes. Two athletic men in calico wrappers have a net thrown over them, covered with all manner of bright colored stripes. Cowtails are fastened to their backs and their heads are decorated with horns. A box covered with sheepskin is called the gumbo box. It doesn't beat on this while others strike triangles and jawbones, to which bands of dancers keep time. For a month previous, they are composing songs which are sung on this occasion. These companies of a handful each turn out early in the morning and are allowed to go round till 12 o'clock begging for contributions. Not a door is left un uninvited where there's a, the least chance of obtaining a penny or a glass of rum. They do not drink while they're out, but carry the rum home in jugs to have a carousal. These Christmas donations frequently amount to 20 or $30. It's seldom that any white child, white man or child refuses to give them a trifle. End quote. And then they mentioned that if they don't, they get a song sung to them that kind of insults them. It's kind of like a mixture of Christmas and Halloween here um, in that, but it's just a wonderful little uh, aside. And of course, anyone coming to the house is a bit of a threat for for, for Harry Jacobs. So. Um, next, we have a chapter called Still in Prison, where she just kind of stays in hiding. How much to say about this? Yeah, let, let's jump ahead to the to 24 and 25, because this deals with, uh, this kind of moves the story forward a little bit, where uh, we find out that Mr. Sands is elected to Congress, is running for Congress, and gets elected. He served one year, or one term, sorry, in Congress. And she was begging Sands to free her children. And a lot of this is done through intermediaries and through community support, but Sands knows she's a baby. And Harry Jacobs is trying to talk him into freeing her children which he doesn't. Instead, he takes her, them with him to, to Washington. Um, meanwhile, to try to keep Flint off her back, she tries to write, write letters and have them postmarked 
she fakes there's fake postmarks on them from New York to try to convince him that he that she's hiding out in New York. And this seems to work. This seems to actually be pretty effective in convincing Flint that she's not around. Um, but as for her children, that the fate of her children and her brother is talked about, I think in chapter 26, where we find out that um, Sands takes the kids with him, with him to the north. So uh, Williams is ends up working with Sands in Washington, and he escapes. And she's uh, fearful for him what's going to happen to him after he escapes. And she's not entirely sure why he did that because he was already kind of had a decent job. But it's just, it's just another reminder of this call for freedom that seems to run through this, this Jacob's family. Um, meanwhile, the children are split up by Sands. Uh, Ellen is given to her sister to New York and Benjamin uh, eventually is first with Mr. Sands, and then he goes to Brooklyn. So they're sent off to the free states, and, and they're essentially free at this point. They, they, so it's, there's, there's a little nuance here, but they're, for all intents and purposes, free, but still under the control of these, these other figures. And eventually, Harry Jacobs is able to, going to reunite with them and get them back into her life um, as they're growing up. Um, the change happens in between chapters 28 and and 30, where she finally escapes. So uh, she's been there in this house, living in the crawl space for seven years at this point. Her kids are gone. They're growing up away from her her eyes. Uh, I'm not sure what happened to Mr. Sands. I don't, I don't think the details are here. After his one term in Congress, maybe he stayed around Washington or in the North. I think that's what happened. Um, so she decides to escape when her aunt Nance uh, Nancy dies, and she realizes like she could die like this. This could be the rest of her life if she doesn't escape. Um, so she decides to make plans to escape, and those plans are made again with a lot of community support. There's a lot of people who support her and prop her up, and and help her do that. Now the way they get out, they get out is she's smuggled on a ship. They're in North Carolina, so it matters. They have to go to the coast and get smuggled onto a ship to the north. They go to Philadelphia, uh, where they're basically there's underground railroad kind of connections with uh, a guy named Reverend Durham. At least in this account, he goes by the name of Reverend Durham, and they go from there to New York. And now the plot kind of shifts to reuniting with your family on the one hand, and then like living as a free, in quotes, uh, black woman. In uh, in, in a still racist North. I mean, it's not like just because they didn't have slavery in the North that there was not racism and and uh, discrimination towards Blacks. And Harry Jacobs, more so than I think any other of these narratives, highlights that. Now, I think we can understand why many of these narratives didn't want to pick on Northern society that much because obviously slavery was worse and they had a clear political agenda here in trying to push for the end of slavery in the South. That's what, That was their hyper-focus. That's the focus of the propaganda that they're producing here. But uh, Harry Jacobs, to her credit, uh, does expose some of the, the poor behavior of Northerners during, um, during these antebellum years and, and how it wasn't that easy for them. Uh, first, you had the Fugitive Slave Law, which is talked about at length later on in the book. But even just finding a job uh, without proof that she was, was free was a difficult work. She didn't have that kind of proof. So they had to take her word for, her, word for it. Uh, 
it wasn't that easy to get a job if people had known she was a runaway slave. Um, and she had to work kind of menial jobs, right? She wasn't sure her children were getting the education that they deserved. She was really worried a lot about Ellen getting an education because she wasn't getting it. She was being treated as a bit of a, a servant, even though, you know, they're in a free state um, and, and, and in a sense freed. Um, now, in Chapter 32, she finally gets reunited with Ellen. Um, and she finds out she hasn't been going to school. Um, so it's, it's kind of a bittersweet uh, chapter there um, in New York when they finally get there. Um, chapter 33, Home Found, is mostly about her trying to find work. She ends up getting a job with a Mrs. Bruce. Now, the story is a bit confusing here because there's two Mrs. Bruce's. I don't know. Since she's making up the names, why she needs to use the same name. Maybe there were two people with the same last name and she just used the same pseudonym for them, Mrs. Bruce. The first Mrs. Bruce is a, a woman she's working for who helps her out, um, but... She's working as a nurse for her child. Now, Mrs. Bruce becomes important because she's like the first white woman who provides her substantial support. That's not like from abolitionist circles. Now, later on, she gets hooked up with abolitionist circles, um, you know, Lydia Marie Child, most, uh, most clearly. But, um, but she just gets a job from her. But eventually, Mrs. Bruce helps her. That's what I'm trying to say. Now, the second Mrs. Bruce, the one who buys her freedom, is an actual abolitionist. Now, I'm not sure why Harry Jacobs used the same name for these uh, for these two different characters. Uh, why add that level of complexity? Unless it's they really did have the same last name, and they, even though they're different people. So, is is the second? But anyway, she she gets a job with this Mrs. Bruce. This is the first Mrs. Bruce, I guess. Um, and it's at this point in the story, and she's reunited with Ellen. Um, she's still not fully reunited with uh, uh, her other kid, Benjamin. But, like, Flint shows up in the story again, right? Um, trying to get her back. Um, so word actually comes that Flint is visiting in the North. Again, we see the Grapevine Telegraph kind of news reports. Like, she's really well informed throughout this. And, and without that information... It's not likely she would have escaped slavery quite the way. She didn't have this community support. Part of that was she was being informed that this guy's coming and he's coming for you because he thinks you're in New York. And then now it's right. Now he actually, actually is in New York. So he goes up there with the intention of trying to find her and bring her back. Remember, the fugitive slave law is in effect. It's in the Constitution, uh, even though this is before the, the revived, renewed fugitive slave law, which does come up in the story. Um, and she has to go into hiding um, to Boston, ostensibly to visit Ben, Benjamin, her, her son. Um, there's quite a lot here also in the section after she escapes Flint where we hear about segregation in the North. And I, and I think that's really a point of significance in this account is, is how she highlights it. She doesn't shy away from it. And she spends so much of the story talking about her time as a free person not focusing just on being, a, um, not just her time as a slave, but as a, you know, as a time as someone struggling, a woman struggling to like raise her family in a, in a horribly racist culture. Um, 
So here's a little bit of what she says about this. Uh, being in servitude to the Anglo-Saxon race, I was not put into a Jim Crow car on our way to Rockaway. Neither was I invited to ride through the streets at the top of the trunks in the, in the truck. But everywhere I found the same manifestations of that cruel prejudice, which so discourages the feelings and represses the energies of the colored people. We reached Rockaway before dark and put up at the pavilion, a large hotel beautifully situated by the seaside, a great resort of the fashionable world. 30 or 40 nurses were there in a great variety of nations. Some of the ladies had colored waiting maids and coachmen, but I was the only nurse tinged with the blood of Africa. When the tea bell rang, I took little Mary and followed the other nurses. Supper was served on a long hall. A young man who had the orderings of things took the circuit of the table two or three times and finally pointed me to the seat at the lower end of it. As there was but one chair, I sat down and looked took the child in my lap, whereupon the young man came to me and said in the blandest possible manner, will you please seat the little girl in the chair and stand beside it and feed her? After they had, after they had done, you will be shown to the kitchen where you'll have a good supper. That was the climax. I found it hard to preserve my self-control when I looked around and saw women who were nurses as I and only one shade lighter in complexion eyeing me with a defiant look as if my presence were in contamination. Unquote. So to sum up what's happening is, is even though she's not in the Jim Crow car, she's caring for this white kid. Um, she's being told, once you're done feeding the kid, you can go eat in the in the kitchen. Right? So I'm going to common experience in, in Jim Crow societies after the Civil War was, was common before. I mean, there has been scholarship on this, how a lot of the, you know, obviously slavery couldn't be a segregated environment because slaves were working directly for white masters. But once you had emancipation, then the, the answer to that became segregation. And they learned a lot of the hints and the tools of segregation from the northern states, which had a lot of these policies before they were picked up by the south. So that's a good chapter. It's called Prejudice Against Color. Now we're coming to the end, the last 20 pages or so of this book, um, where again, uh, he has to escape um, uh, to Boston because of Flint's arrival. Um, He's again kind of, Flint is again trying to get Harriet Jacobs. Um, or it's like maybe Flint's family members, I think, are writing, saying, why don't you come back and all that. So she finally confesses to her employer, Mrs. Bruce, saying, I'm actually a slave. And these guys are after me. And really amazingly, this is really a turning point, I think, is where Mrs. Bruce, instead of firing her or or you know, calling Flint, writing Flint, because maybe there's some money in, that she could get. She treats Harriet Jacobs as a friend and helps her, seeks her, you know, helps her get a lawyer, helps sneak her out to Boston. I think for a while she has to like hide on the countryside here. Um, Al and Ben are reunited as a family. So all three of them get back together um, with Harriet Jacobs. And and this Miss Bruce really becomes the hero of the story and, and helps her out substantially, which is more than anyone else really did. And this is before she kind of started running in abolitionist circles who would have been more sympathetic with her cause. Okay, now we get uh, towards the climax of the story where she visits England. Um, th th this happens because Miss Bruce dies and then Mrs. Mr. Bruce, the brother, or the husband, I guess it's the husband, decides to take the child to England, but 
Harry Jacobs is still employed as the nurse, so they, she goes and spends a couple weeks in England. Um, and again, like, like the experiences of other former slaves who went to Europe, it was a chance to experience a very different environment where there was at least the comparable feeling of equality between whites and blacks, something you didn't feel in America, or she didn't feel in America, kind of like a, a I think Douglas talks about this experience as well, how there was a, a greater sense of freedom and equality among uh, in Europe than, than compared to compared to even northern states in America. She returns. Uh, again, Flint is still on her, at least Flint's family, again, trying to get her to come. Um, now, there's another interesting side note here about Ben, because Ben at this point was trying to get like a job as a as a, in a as an apprentice, but wasn't being treated fairly and equally by possible employers. Uh, he was facing discrimination discrimination uh, in kind of these crafts he's trying to enter into. Learning trade. So he goes to see. Quote: I found Ellen well and improving at her school, but Benny was not there to welcome me. He had left a, a good place to learn a trade. He had been left at a good place to learn a trade, and for several months, everything worked well. He was liked by the master and was a favorite with his fellow apprentices. But one day, they accidentally they discovered that what they had never suspected, that he was colored. Now, remember, uh, Benjamin would have been like one quarter black, right? Because Harry Jacob is half, um, only half black, has a white parent, and so does Benjamin and Ellen. Because Mr. Sands was white. Um, so they find out he's colored. This at once transformed him into a different being. Some of the apprentices were American and other American born Irish. It was offensive to their dignity to have a N-word among them, and they were told that he was a N-word. N-word is used here. They began by treating him with silent scorn and finding that he returned to the same. They resorted to insults and abuse. He was too spirited a boy to stand that, and he went off, being desirous to do something to support himself. And having no one to advise him, he shipped for a whaling voyage. Now, I don't want to jump to the conclusion uh, that sailors are beyond racism, but some of the sources I've read on this suggest that um, it was a little bit better among sailors. There was a little bit less overt racism among among sailors, uh, partially because of the international diverse experience of them. But I don't want to overstate that. Um, I've been accused of doing that in the past. Um, anyways, that's a cool little uh, mention, but we also have letters tr still trying to convince her to go by the Flint family, trying to convince her to go back to the South. Um, it's at this point that she confesses, this is in chapter 39, she confesses to Ellen that Mr. Sands is her father, and she's like, oh yeah, I, I know about that. It's kind of a cute little thing. And it's, it's, it's not the first time Harriet Jacobs has been filled with anxiety over something about her past or something she did or her, 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 you know, the way she interacts with her kids, that the kids, you know, like we already knew that or, or, or take it in stride. And I just think it's something to, to keep in mind how, how smart and observant kids can be. Um, the final ending of the story then comes with the fugitive slave law being passed. Uh, now she's got there's a greater threat with it. This is a common theme we've seen before in slave narratives where the renewed fugitive slave law of 1850 uh, made it easier for Southerners to reclaim uh, slaves that ran away and return them to the South, even if they were living in free states. 
so this leads her to act uh, more aggressively to secure her legal freedom, uh, purchasing her freedom, but she doesn't have the money for that. Um, when Flint dies, uh, she gets word of that, and then there's a second Mrs. Bruce. Well, I'm not sure who that is in real life. I probably, I was trying to look it up, but I couldn't find out who it was. I don't think it's a child. I think it's some of these other abolitionists she was working with. But the second Mrs. Bruce is a hardcore abolitionist. She's starting to interact with those groups, and she buys her freedom. Um, and she's she's free, and that's how the story ends. The narrative ends. So um, I think... This really is one of the, if not the most interesting slave narrative to talk about because it does some things other narratives don't do. One is it, it talks about the sexual violence of slavery directly from a woman's point of view. We don't really get this from Sojourner Truth's narrative, which is a lot about motherhood, obviously, but the sexual violence isn't as big a part. It's, it's under the surface there. Here it's on the surface. It's right there. It's the heart of the story. Um, and it's from a woman's point of view. So other narratives do talk about this as well, but through through a, a, a man's eyes. Um, like we have with, uh, is it Henry Bibb, I think, um, where you have a very moralistic idea about the choices women in slavery make. Um, here, Harry Jacobs has to make certain choices, like taking on Sands as a lover to create some distance between her and Flint. It's an understandable choice, but when other people made a similar choice, like Bibb's wife under slavery, he disowns her after that. Um, now, it's a little bit different in that she chooses to be the mistress of her, of her master, not finding an outside man, but it's still a choice that she had to make to survive in, in slavery and to get the best deal she could. Um, so Bibb was very, very judgmental about it, but Harry Jacobs forces us to to understand these choices and these dilemmas. So I think that's uh, an important contribution of it. Um, the story itself is just so great. Like how, as a young woman, I mean, the main events of this take place between like the age of 15 and like 27. She's, she's in this house, like, like from the age of 15 or 16 until her early 20s. And then she's uh, still a very young woman trying to make it in, New York and Boston and, and Philly, but mostly mostly in New York, as you know, as, as a worker, getting her kids an education, an education she got sort of secondhand through her through her mistress, um, but but wasn't going to be available for her her child unless she took that step. Uh, we also have the very honest account of prejudice in the North, which other slave narratives don't emphasize nearly as much. Um, really great, really, really important story. And um, hopefully someday we can see something like this on film. I, I don't know why it hasn't been. Maybe it has been adapted, but I don't think it has. I don't think there's been an effort to do that. But we're, we're getting some good film adaptations of the experience of slaves recently in the last few years. And, you know, I hope we keep getting more and, and and I think this should be one that, that maybe should be considered looking at just because of its the drama of it all, right? There's great moments here that, that that would be great on screen, I think. Great moments of tension and and fear. And if you can really get into her head, she does a great job. Jacobs does a great job of building up that feeling of, of 
danger at those moments. Um, some great Americana here too. I think the Christmas party stuff is just wonderful um, and, and a lot of fun, even though it only takes a couple pages. So I guess that's it. That's it for this uh, chapter or this this episode. Uh, in the next episode, we'll do the final slave narrative, which isn't even 100 pages. It's barely 50 pages. Jacob D. Green. Um, it was pub that one was published in 1864. Probably be a short episode because there's not much here. It's just an account of some of his escapes. Um, we could probably almost skip it. Um, but I don't think I will. I think I'll give you my thoughts briefly on it, uh, just to be complete here. And then um, after that, we'll be moving on to, uh, I know I'm doing this series on black writers for a while. I'm going to be doing that for a few months, but I do want to do Harriet Beecher Stowe first, kind of to be in the same vein, even though she's obviously not a black writer. Uh, I've never read Uncle Tom's Cabin, and I think uh, it's time I have. So I'm making myself do it, and now is the time I'm going to fit it in. But after that, we'll we'll look at, Du Bois's Black Reconstruction in America, and then maybe do some Richard Wright. Um, what else could we do? We could always do uh, uh, what's uh, James Baldwin, too. Um, I don't think I own those volumes, though. Ah, anyways, at least we'll do some Richard Wright and, and Du Bois after, after that. So for a few more months, we're going to be looking at... at um, at the Black Experience in America, although for one brief series we'll be we'll be looking at it through the eyes of a of a white woman, and I haven't read her other two novels either. I think that volume has three of her books, so um, it'll be a chance to learn something about Harry Beecher Stowe, a writer I don't actually know that much about, as famous as she is. Uh, actually, know more about Catherine Beecher. As funny as it is, um, I've read more of her stuff than I ever read by Harry Beecher Stowe. Okay, that's it for now. Uh, thanks for listening. I had a lot of fun talking about Harry Jacobs with you. I hope you read this book. I, I do think it's worthy of our attention. Um, anyway, see you next time. Thanks for listening. God's gonna trouble the water. It looks like the band that Moses led. God's gonna trouble the water.